Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1951, a young historian of science named Derek DeSola Price was examining a medieval manuscript in the library of Peterhouse College in Cambridge. When the pages of parchment were unbound from their 19th century binding, to his delight, he saw there the, the name Chaucer. Indeed, to such delight that he and two distinguished scholars were ejected from the library for their whooping and their hollering. But this was not a manuscript copy of the Canterbury Tales or even a letter by the, the great medieval author, but an instruction manual for a scientific instrument. In the end, as my guest Sebastian Falk explains, the manuscript turns out to have been authored not by Geoffrey Chaucer, but an, an obscure Benedictine monk named John of Westwick. But John's life and his scientific interests afford us a window into the fascinating world of medieval European science, which Falk takes full advantage of in his new book, The Light Ages, The Surprising Story of Medieval Science. Seb Falk is not only a historian of medieval science and qualified teacher, but at various times in his life, a civil servant, a lecturer, museum curator, yacht master, marathon runner, mountaineer, and at least once a special constable. Seb Falk, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. So, um, why did you decide to title uh, your book uh, The Light Ages? Uh, well, it was a bit of a joke, actually. Um, I was um, asking various friends what I should what I should call it, and and explaining that I wanted to write a book that overturned the myths uh, that the Middle Ages was a dark age for science. Uh, and somebody, a colleague of mine, said, "Oh, why don't you just call it the Light Ages as opposed to the Dark Ages?" Uh, and it was initially. Uh, just a provisional title, which I sent to my agent as a kind of placeholder. And somehow it, like these things often happen, it made it into the final book. And uh, my publisher was a little bit concerned that essentially we would have to make the subtitle as opposed to the Dark Ages, the Light Ages as opposed to the Dark Ages, uh, and that this wouldn't uh, wouldn't be very successful. But in a way, it started a conversation uh, mm -hmm. because it's playing with people's expectations. Uh, one thing I was nervous of, I didn't want my book to be seen as a book that says you're wrong, a book that says everything <laughs> you know is stupid, because people don't, readers don't like to be told that they're stupid. So in my book, I make a real effort to talk in positive terms, you know, to mm -hmm. talk about what we can what we can learn, and to let people see things for themselves, rather than be lectured at by me. But above all, I really wanted to overturn this myth, I wanted to reclaim the glories of the Middle Ages, uh, and show people how people uh, in medieval times were ingenious and inventive and innovative, uh, and, uh, and full of ideas and imagination. Um, so who was John of Westwick? Um, as you uh, fully allow at a couple of places, uh, he's not the most important scientist, and we should I should bracket that word scientist, of the Middle Ages, um, but uh, he's a very useful character, and I think you had a lot of fun uh, and labor in tracking him down. I absolutely did, yes. Uh, he's important because he's not important. Uh, exactly. Because so many histories of science are told as parades of great men, and it is always men, of course, uh, who are told in these stories as being... Until Marie Curie. 
until Marie Curie, yeah. Uh, and occasionally you get uh, examples of, of women who are held up as being kind of ahead of their time. Uh, but again, this idea of being ahead of their time is uh, overly simplistic because people are always born and live within their time. They can only arise out of the context um, in which they were educated or or had the opportunities that they had. Uh, so even someone like Leonardo da Vinci, who stands out for us when we look in detail, turns out not to be so unique. You know, of course, he was uh, a staggering uh, thinker and an artist and uh, had so many important achievements. But uh, but all these people come out of a particular context and understanding that context helps us understand them, helps us appreciate their very real achievements better. So in the case of John of Westwick, what I wanted was a monk uh, because I wanted to uh, show how important the relationship between science and religion really was, uh, that uh, these were not things that were automatically in conflict uh, as as so often they're portrayed, uh, but, but as ideas and beliefs that have kind of a complex, uh, sometimes contributory uh, relationship. But above all, I wanted somebody who uh, made a contribution, who did important and interesting things, but wasn't a famous person. So he could be a kind of an everyman. And, and as an everyman, he had kind of an unusual and interesting story. So he goes off on crusade, he gets exiled to a clifftop priory. He lives in England's most uh, wealthy and influential monastery. He ends up in London. He meets Chaucer. As you say, there's a lot that we don't know about him. We don't know for sure whether he attended university. Uh, but what we can reconstruct of his life tells us that he had a kind of interesting, adventurous life. And that life uh, was the story that I used to hang my history of medieval science uh, on, a, on a nice narrative arc so that the book should be interesting for people to read, uh, but also tell people important things. So who did you... Did, did you plan to tell this story of medieval science before you knew of John of Westwick, or did you discover John of Westwick first? Um, it's a little bit chicken and egg. Uh, I, As soon as I started learning about the achievements of uh, medieval science, I had an idea that this would something I wanted to write a book about, but it wasn't a very concrete plan. Uh, it was uh, a, gen, uh, a vague aspiration, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and then I found out about John of Westwick when I was halfway through my research for my PhD, um, which was uh, on this sort of subject. Uh, and, uh, and as soon as I heard about him, um, I realized uh, that this guy could be the key to making a book. And the problem that I faced was essentially books that had been written about medieval science in the past went to one of two extremes. Either they um, go into so much detail about the science that they just deter and turn off casual readers, or they just gloss over all the science and you have to take the author's word for it. Now, I wanted to do the science justice. I wanted to let readers see it for themselves. I wanted to let readers understand exactly how complex medieval science was. But at the same time, I didn't want to put them off. I didn't want to turn them off. I wanted my ideal reader is somebody sitting in his or her armchair of a Friday evening, relaxing. I don't want them to have to work hard or not too hard anyway, um, in order to achieve an understanding. And so John of Westwick gives my gives my book a kind of a story so that even if occasionally you might get a bit bogged down in calculations or in astronomy or uh, in the motions of the stars or the planets, uh, pretty soon you get back to something interesting about monks getting too drunk at universities and misbehaving yeah, or right. uh, you know going on crusade or whatever it might be.
And it makes it very good for the podcaster because I can't uh, really reproduce geometrical uh, diagrams uh, of the stars in a podcast, not yet. Um, not until we have the Apple Eye Cortex, and we'll be able to like you know display that right in your frontal lobe. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you if you've got an app that will help me think three dimensionally, that would be very yeah, useful. That would be very you. useful indeed. Um, uh, but we can talk about John of Westwick and his uh, strange and the fact that he went on a crusade in Flanders, which is mm -hmm. odd, and things indeed. like that. Um, but we, we we should say so. I mean, I I remember reading. I think it was Newman's History of Mathematics. My dad had a copy uh, near his armchair and where I did most of my learning, uh, and. Uh, it sort of glossed over the Middle Ages, to put it politely. Um, there was Ptolemy, and he was wrong, and then there was Copernicus. Um, and, and of course, Copernicus was also wrong. So, yes, uh, but, but, but heroic. Yes, um, and uh, less because, wrong than Ptolemy. Yes, and less wrong. And also, you know, heroic because, you know, everyone else was very, very wrong around him. So we, and that's sort of the way that most people learn their history of science. So, um, you know, before we before we press on, we should probably say, you know, basically have you give a, a brisk argument about what's important about medieval science. Yeah, that's a really important question, because I think so often when people think about the history of science, they think about this narrative of constant progress, that we go from uh, year X to year Y, and in year X, we knew nothing, and in year Y, i.e. 2020, we know everything. Well, actually, if this year, above all years, has taught us anything, it's that we don't know as much as we think we know. Uh, and of course, in the year whenever you want to start your history, people were not completely ignorant. But even if uh, you focus on the things that people didn't know in the past that they know now, you're still going to miss a whole lot of valuable history, because... Um, you, you miss out about the, the backward steps. You miss out about uh, the sideways steps. You misunderstand that people who were studying nature in the past may not have had the same aims as we have today in finding out about how the world works. Uh, so what my book does is it doesn't talk so much in terms of what we know now that we didn't know then, or what people discovered in the Middle Ages uh, that they, they hadn't known at the beginning of the period, but more about how science was such an important part of the culture of the, of the period. So that if you are interested in uh, literature or culture or castles or battles or plague, you should also understand that at the same time as all these things were happening, uh, they were also investigating nature. They were also making models of the motions of the planets, or they were trying to understand how particular plants might help in medicine, or they were calculating uh, to, to nine sexagesimal places. So uh, astronomy and other sciences uh, in my book are at the heart of medieval culture. We find them in poetry. There's poetry in five languages in my book. Uh, we find them in art, uh, and, uh, and we find them in... Um, every facet of medieval culture so let's um head back to john um westwick where is it and what's the connection to the richest monastery well arguable uh in um england yeah well we we can't be absolutely certain but uh there are westwick means a kind of farm to the west of somewhere uh, or a manor <laughs> to the west of somewhere so to the west of where well there's westwicks uh all over the country but um the westwick that he almost certainly came from was uh the westwick which was right by the abbey of st albans uh, and whose lands uh were were more or less part of the abbey of st albans although there's a complicated story around that as well um 
and he we we know very little about this guy uh, as i say in the book um almost half of the monks in the monastery of st albans which is about a day's walk north of london uh, these days it's more or less a suburb but uh, but uh, back then it was a, a city uh, well it still is a city but uh, it was perhaps more independent uh, than it is now and it's a city on the road north so important and influential and also it was important in roman times as well because the roman city of verulamium was constructed there uh, and and that uh, gives it its importance too because again it's on the main road north so he's born in a manner which uh, belongs to or is associated with uh, this very wealthy and influential and important abbey. St Albans is close to London, as I say, but it's also close to the University of Oxford. It's extremely wealthy. It has royal patrons. Uh, and the abbot of St Albans at the time that John of Westwick uh, joined the monastery was the most important abbot in the English Benedictine movement. So he is kind of the president of the English Benedictines. So this is an extraordinarily wealthy and influential and important monastery. John of Westwick was not himself important within the monastery. He didn't ever rise to high office, but he had the opportunity to learn about science. Uh, he had the opportunity to consult books. A previous abbot uh, of St Albans had been Richard of Wallingford about 50 years uh, 50 years earlier, who, uh, apart from uh, getting leprosy and, uh, and dying fairly early into his abbacy, had constructed uh, the world's most advanced astronomical clock of the period right there in the abbey. So John of Westwick was surrounded by science from the day of his entry into the monastery. Um, we, should, we should say, what, what are the dates? I don't think we've mentioned those. No, so... Uh, we again, we can't be absolutely certain. Um, the records of John Westwick run from about 1380 to about 1397, um, but we most likely he was born in the 1350s uh, and he died uh, around about 1400. So that's what we're talking about. So as a as a wee lad, uh, and when he would have been when he would have come into the monastery, perhaps as an as an oblate as a, a very a young boy how would he have been educated how would how would uh first of all should we use the term um sa the term scantia in the middle ages is much debated i think i spent um maybe two days uh two three hour periods in medieval uh, theology hmm. discussing um what Aquinas meant by scientia, the science of the sacred page, scientia mm -hmm. sacra pagina. I think that's the the phrase that Aquinas uses. So, um, what does it mean in the Middle Ages? And and then how does the medieval learning, at least in the traditional story that people are used to, it it sort of creates anti scientists. It doesn't create scientists. So, how could this trivium and quadrivium stuff? First of all, what is it? And how does it actually create scientists? Well, so the trivium and quadrivium are uh, three and four, three ways and four ways, and they add up to seven, uh, and they add up to the seven liberal arts. And those liberal arts were laid down in late Roman educational theory uh, by a number of philosophers who kind of built up layers uh, of theory. But by the time uh, that we're talking about in the later medieval period, they're fairly well cemented uh, that uh, the three are the three arts of the word, uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Uh, so the arts of speaking and writing and making your argument and making people understand you. And the quadrivium are the four mathematical arts. So don't think arts in terms of humanities as, as we think of them today. Um, uh, and they are arithmetic, astronomy, music and geometry. 
So these are the kind of basic subjects that were were studied uh, in the in the cathedral schools, in the monastic schools, and in the universities. John of Westwick, as somebody who came into the monastery, would have needed, of course, to study the important things uh, that monks needed to know to understand the liturgy, to be able to read um, the the texts that he would be reading and singing, um, and uh, to be able to undertake sacred study, as you say. Uh, but of course, uh, for uh, monks and and religious scholars going going way back to uh, the the dawn of Christianity, there was an un- importance uh, of understanding nature, understanding creation. Because if you really wanted to understand God, you had to understand uh, all of the clues that God had put in the world uh, to His purpose or to His mindset. Uh, so the very um, popular metaphor in the in the Middle Ages was that um, you had to study two books: the Book of Scripture, uh, the Bible, and the Book of Nature, which was all around us. So uh, for for monks uh, and and certainly for university scholars, it was important to be able to look around and to study nature in order to be able to uh, get closer to the mind of God. So modern listeners are, are, are like, uh, they have their hands raised because they're wondering why do we put music in astronomy? Why, are they, why would they be put into, uh, in, into questions of number? So what, what's your response to that? Well, um, music is, is an interesting one because we think of music as being a kind of performance-oriented subject. Um, but of course, as any violinist will tell you, if you uh, put your finger on the string halfway up the string, you raise the... Um, you halve the length of the string, you raise the note by an octave. So uh, music is is governed by precise and pure ratios. uh, And there's a certain kind of mystery to that, um, uh, even even perhaps for musicians today. But um, the the understanding of music was very much an understanding of ratios, of number, of precision. Uh, So music fits as a kind of application of arithmetic in that sense. And astronomy was applied geometry. So if you understand uh, angles, you understand curves and arcs, uh, this is going to help you understand the stars. And astronomy was the most uh, precise and the most accurate uh, science, the thing closest to what we might call a science today. In the sense... Oh, sorry. And astronomy... Go on, go on. Uh, In the sense that... uh, Astronomy is measurable, right? Unlike other sciences, unlike the life sciences, you know, you want to understand a tree or you want to understand a, a, a sheep or, uh, you know, a bird in the sky. It's very hard to kind of gain a mathematical understanding of those things um, from, you know, without precise instruments. But astronomy uh, was susceptible to measurement from the very beginning because the very basics of understanding the world around us includes understanding the calendar, for example. If you want to plant your crops in the field, you have to uh, know uh, you know when to do that and when to harvest them, and that uh, involves an understanding of the calendar. People standing in the fields might say, well, actually, the best time to plant these crops is when the sun rises behind that tree on the horizon over there. And then uh, as the summer goes on, uh, the sun will rise ever further north until the solstice when the sun will start to track back along the horizon. And so this kind of uh, observation uh, and assessment of 
motions and changes according to the seasons, changes in the skies, changes in the positions of the planets, changes in the visibility of certain stars. These are things that were observed by ancient astronomers, but they were very susceptible to mathematization. They were susceptible to uh, careful measurement. And in order to understand how these things worked, above all, to understand the motions of the planets, astronomers had to come up with geometrical models, which would predict their positions. So Ptolemy, uh, much maligned, as you say, came up with extraordinarily, and he wasn't the only one, he came up with extraordinarily accurate and precise uh, models for predicting the positions of the planets, based, it must be said, on false premises, but still extremely useful uh, for for their time. You use a great um, phrase in the book, folk astronomy. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. Because it's... Uh, it indicates a, a world of understanding and of seeing that we, we don't have access to anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if uh, if you go out on a dark night uh, most of the time now, you won't be able to see very much because uh, you will have street lights, uh, you will have air pollution, uh, and you may not have the patience to really observe the changes in the positions of the stars uh, and the planets uh, and the sun and the moon. Um, but uh, people in the Middle Ages uh, were much more alive, perhaps, than we are uh, to the seasonal changes. Uh, and those seasonal changes include the change in the length of daylight, uh, so the change of the time between sunrise and sunset, uh, the change in the phases of the moon, of course, which we might be more well aware of, but perhaps not fully understand in a way that people uh, did really back then, uh, the changes in the positions of the planets, uh, and the planet, the word planet comes from the Greek word meaning wanderer. So these were stars, which were stars like any other, except that unlike the other stars, which always stayed fixed in their positions relative to one another, the planets uh, wandered among the stars. Uh, and so uh, what people in their fields at night were observing uh, was, of course, the rising and setting of the stars, rising towards the east, setting towards the west, all going around the pole, all going around the North Star, which, as we understand it today, is more or less at the axis of the Earth's rotation. But from the point of view of a medieval observer, uh, these stars were all uh, circling around that that pole star or circling around the precise position of the pole. But also they were observing that at different times of year, certain constellations would be visible and other constellations would not be visible because the sun moved through the constellations. And as the sun moved through the constellations, of course, those constellations which were closest to the sun couldn't be seen because they were only above the horizon during daytime. So there is a kind of a blurring of uh, precise mathematical astronomy and folk astronomy. But uh, we see in literature from ancient times, you know, right up to the Middle Ages, uh, that uh, people were using understanding of the positions of the uh, of the stars and the planets uh, and uh, and the times of day and sunrise and sunset in order to do things like uh, decide when to plant their crops, when to harvest their crops. And of course, it's also folk astronomy, which you might say um, allows the construction of monuments like uh, in, in Britain, Stonehenge, in Ireland, New Grange, and monuments, of course, in Mesoamerica as well, and in Egypt, uh, which are aligned to the stars or which are aligned so that the sun uh, sunlight 
goes uh, down a certain passage or through a certain hole on a particular day of the year. Uh, this is, uh, you might say, focused on um, too. Listeners to this podcast will shortly be hearing another podcast, which I recorded with the medieval historian Ken Monshine uh, about his book On Time. Uh, this was, I have to, listeners will be thinking that I have some bee in my bonnet about this topic. It's actually completely accidental. I wish I could say this was good editorial practice. Um, one of the things that Ken points out, and you point out as well, is that it, to a, a much greater degree than we can appreciate, medieval people had a much more relative view of time. That is, they had several different currents of time governing their lives. Um, we are governed by one concept of time uh, that we have when we look at our uh, clock on our phone, on our watch, um, on the wall. Uh, but medieval people uh, could have had that, uh, in at least in St. Albans, they had a really good clock. Um, but they also had the, uh, the light, uh, they had the, uh, uh, the, the way that days changed. That was a, that's a way of, that's a sort of time in their lives. They've also got the different sort of phases of the moon. That's a sort of different time. Uh, but at St. Albans, they also had the, 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 the hours that John of Westwick was basically his chief task in life was to pray at different times. And that was a different, there was a different stream of time in his life. Could you could you speak to that the different time, the streams of time in his life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think fundamentally, some of those systems of time might seem strange to us, but the basic principle is that uh, any conception of time serves a purpose. So whatever system of time. Uh, people are using, they're using for a reason because it's useful to them. And we have to think that the majority of people in uh, the Middle Ages were agricultural laborers. They were working most of their lives in the fields. They worked more in the summer than in the winter. Um, and they mostly could only work during daylight. In the monastery, as you just said, they're constrained by the requirements of their order to, to undergo or carry out certain offices at certain times of day. And again, those change with the seasons, as do the meal times and the other work that monks uh, have to do. So as you say, they had the system, and particularly astronomers, had the system of equal hours. That's the system we use today, where every hour is equal in length. But they also had a system uh, which can be called unequal hours, or is sometimes called canonical hours or seasonal hours. Uh, and that is a system where there are always exactly 12 hours between sunrise and sunset, and exactly 12 hours between sunset and sunrise every day of the year. So what that means, of course, is that in the summer, those hours are very long, because 12 hours from sunrise to sunset, sunrise to sunset is a very long time in the summer. Uh, and the nighttime hours are correspondingly very short in the summer. Now, that might seem unnecessarily complicated, but it makes a huge amount of sense uh, for somebody who is really constrained by what they can do in daylight. And that's almost everybody in the Middle Ages, even uh, in wealthy monasteries where they had a good supply of candles. Those candles uh, don't, don't uh, uh, produce a huge amount of light, so it's much better to get stuff done in the daytime if you possibly can. And so they tended to to sleep more uh, uh, in the in the winter, and they tended to eat more in the summer because they were awake for longer. And the rhythms of life were much more in tune with the uh, natural changes in the seasons and in nature. Uh, but of course, 
sophisticated astronomers went beyond that too. So if you look at the clock uh, made or at least designed by Richard of Wallingford, sadly, which no longer survives uh, because it was destroyed in the 16th century, uh, but um, various replicas have been made. And there's a picture of one of those replicas in my book. If you look at that clock, that clock uh, tells three different kinds of time, uh, not even counting the phases of the moon. It tells the equal hours, which were rung out uh, on a chiming uh, bell, uh, just as some clocks chime today. It tells the unequal hours uh, with the face of an astrolabe telling uh, the time in these seasonal canonical hours. And it also tells something with a moving sun. It tells the true solar time. Now, the true solar time is something that most people today are unaware of, and certainly most clocks today don't show. And that true solar time takes account of the fact that the day is not always 24 hours long. The time from one sunrise to the following sunrise is not always 24 hours long. And that's because, in as we understand it, the Earth goes around the sun in an ellipse, and also the angle of the sun to the uh, spin of the Earth is uh, is not consistent. Uh, when when the sun crosses the equator at the equinoxes, uh, it's uh, at a at a um, fairly sharp angle to that equator. And when the sun uh, reaches its northernmost and southernmost points at the solstices, it's uh, more or less well. Um, parallel to the equator. And so that angle changes the length of the day. And so uh, in practice, the true solar time can be different from the mean time, which we use. The time zone I'm in right now is Greenwich mean time, and it's called mean time because mean time puts 24 hours in every day. And the difference between true time and mean time might be, might be as much as 15 minutes uh, at certain times mm. of year. So all of this was understood by uh, medieval astronomers. Now, of course, even 15 minutes might not be particularly relevant or particularly important uh, to uh, most people going about their daily business in the Middle Ages. But for astronomers who wanted, again, who wanted to understand God or above all, who had the scientific mindset that they were simply interested in precision and interested in being correct, uh, these instruments that they devised to show these different kinds of time were a way of demonstrating their expertise, demonstrating their understanding, uh, and showing that understanding to uh, other people who were able to understand and, un and learn from those instruments. So the instruments like the clock become uh, an instrument in the sense of uh, finding out new knowledge, but also an instrument of demonstration, an instrument of teaching. Uh, and the Middle Ages was very much an era where uh, teaching goes hand in hand with research and learning. Before we talk more about that and about college, um, let me briefly ask you about something which I'm embarrassed to say I never knew anything about. Um, I, I used to know something about the medieval world, um, less now, as I forget, but um, I had no idea, even back when I knew a lot more, that Bede had written a, a book called On Time Reckoning, and I had no idea of the way of using your fingers to do arithmetic. No idea about that. I had no idea either that um, the way that uh, medieval people used uh, their own sort of abacus. Could you very briefly talk about how to, using their fingers? Because that's like a, a whole world of, of knowledge that's been lost. Yeah, I mean, again, for, for monks like Bede, um, 
understanding time is important to Christian devotion. Uh, and I haven't mentioned Easter yet, but of course, Easter uh, in the Christian calendar, based on the Jewish festival of Passover, but also based on the weeks of the year, because Easter has to be on a Sunday for Christians. Um, it's uh, a complex combination of the solar and the lunar calendar to be able to calculate the date of Easter. So monks trying to figure this out were at the cutting edge of astronomy because, of course, the lunar and solar calendars are incommensurable. So they don't quite map onto each other perfectly. So calculating that becomes a really important skill. And Bede writes a whole book about this. But early on in that book, as you say, he gives an explanation of how to count to 9,999 on your fingers. And he says this is not just for multiplication and for counting. It could also be used for sign language or codes uh, or um, simply passing messages in monasteries where you're not allowed to talk. And um, the way that he counts to 9,999 uh, on uh, on his fingers is if, if listeners hold up their hands uh, with the palms away from them, so their thumbs are pointing towards each other, they hold up their hands uh, so that they can see the backs of their hands. So the left hand is, is of course, on your left. Uh, the first uh, three fingers, the outside three fingers, the little finger, the ring finger, and the in uh, the middle finger of the left hand are used for the digits. And indeed, uh, the word digit uh, comes from the Latin word for finger. Uh, and, um, and of course, that's where we get digital and so on from. And then the next, the index finger and the thumb of the left hand were used for the tens. Uh, and the word for tens in Latin was articuli, mm. which means joints. And the way that you bent your thumb over your forefinger would give you the tens. Then the next thumb and forefinger, the thumb and forefinger of your right hand would give you the hundreds. And then the last three fingers, the middle finger, the ring finger, and the pinky of your right hand uh, would be the thousands. And by using the numbers in columns like that, you can count up to 9,999. Uh, and... Um, there's a video, uh, I, I made a video, in fact, one in English and one in Spanish. Uh, if people go to sebfork.com, you can find it on my website where I demonstrate uh, a couple of numbers using this system. Uh, and it's a system, you know, in a way, if you think about it, it's a little bit of trickery. It's a little bit of kind of showing off. And you think, well, actually, how useful really was this? Um, but it shows uh, that monks were really interested in developing facility with numbers, uh, in in um, developing different skills in order uh, to, uh, in the same way as, you know, you might recite tongue twisters or something in order to uh, show that you can pronounce complex words in other foreign languages when you're learning languages. Uh, this for the monks was a way of kind of showing their understanding of numbers and uh, and and reproducing different complex calculations using their but fingers. But the uh, using the grids on a page that's that's not trickery. That's that's just a, that's a way of of. I mean, abacus has worked perfectly well up until you know until digital computers. Ah oh, yes, absolutely, yeah, um, and uh, and using uh, abacuses. I mean, there's a famous case right after the Second World War of a, a competition between a, an abacist, a user of a, um, a one of these um, grids with wires and counters, um, which of course you know you're, are children's toys these days uh, in Japan, um, and uh, and a, a user of an electronic calculator, which of course in the 1940s were not uh, nearly as advanced as they are today. Uh, and the Japanese uh, abacist beat the American calculator operator, I have to say, um, in this 
numerical challenge uh, because uh, he was so fast at using the traditional technology and the calculator operator was obviously using fairly yeah. emergent um, modern technology that wasn't able to keep up with the abacus. So an abacus could be used for really very complicated multiplications and divisions. Uh, and and as I say, it's a kind of a way of demonstrating understanding yeah. of, of numbers And I, as well. I've heard that story and I've always thought of it as, you know, when I was young, that was, oh, that's the mystery. It was a very Orientalist story, the mysteries of the, of the hidden East and how advanced they are. I had no <laughs> idea, you know, uh, it, in, I, it, but of course, then it turns out that in the medieval West, they were also using an abacus and, and techniques like it to do the sort of same rapid calculations. That's my only, my only point about that. Um, yeah. So let's move on to uh, Gloucester College um, at Oxford, uh, which is now Worcester, but let's not get hung up about that. Uh, the Benedictines had their own uh, <laughs> college um, in Oxford. Uh, why would they send people there? Uh, why would anyone go to college in medieval Oxford? And then we'll get to that. What could you learn, possibly learn about science? at oxford oh well there's there's a there's a lot of questions there there and 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 all good ones um so why oxford why was there a university in oxford well you know these things develop their own momentum but uh we don't we can't really be sure why oxford was chosen for the foundation uh of what became uh england's most important university uh in the towards the end of the 12th century um but what we can see in general about universities is that they kind of developed quite organically so uh cathedrals had schools monasteries had schools and those were initially uh, invent, uh, intended to educate uh, churchmen, to educate priests, to educate bishops. And then, of course, as finances became more complicated, as, as administration became more complicated, they also wanted to educate lawyers and administrators, again, to serve the church. But then, of course, other people want that kind of education. So they try and uh, enter into the schools as well. And sometimes the schools can serve uh, those people because they have a bit of spare capacity and then they can make a bit of money or they can buy influence by educating uh, the children of rich or influential people. Uh, or if those schools don't have capacity, maybe somebody who is a graduate of one of those schools um, takes on the teaching uh, as a way to earn a little bit of money on the side. So these kind of freelance teachers build up around the schools. And then what happens is you see a freelance teacher working in a, in a city uh, and you want to teach and earn some money as well. You're going to set up nearby them in order to try and take on any pupils that they don't have capacity for. And then organically, these organizations build up. And the first universities um, uh, are unions of students or unions of masters, teachers. Uh, and the word university means more or less a union. It's a kind of alliance of the students who want to protect their rights or the teachers who want to protect their rights. And the way that they build up uh, is different in different places. And the specialisms that those universities teach are different in different places. So in Bologna, which was already a centre for law, uh, the university focuses on law. It's probably the first of Europe's universities. Uh, it traditionally dates its foundation to 1088, uh, although there's really very little evidence for that. Um, and a lot of these universities don't have their founding documents uh, and their first charters don't come for you know maybe more than 50 years after they uh, claim that there was education going on in those places. But as I've described, the education was often very organic, very fluid, so it's hard to be certain, hard to put a uh, a start date on these things, at least for the first universities. Uh, and then there's also um, study of medicine in Italy, uh, coming out of the medical school at Salerno in southern Italy, but also in places like Padua, 
Um, and Padua was founded because the students at Bologna were unhappy with the with the conditions under which they were being taught, unhappy with their living conditions, uh, and so they decided to to go and set up a new university at uh, Padua, which is not very far away. Paris was a great centre of theology well before the university was founded in the 12th century, but then the university heightens that and makes it even more influential. And in Oxford, uh, there's a little bit of study of theology, but there's also um, study of other subjects as well. And above all this uh, quadrivium and trivium, uh, the, the foundational uh, art subjects, which we already mentioned. So if you wanted to study something like law or theology or medicine, which were the three higher subjects I've already mentioned, uh, you first had to study the arts and you typically studied the arts in a separate arts faculty and you had to graduate as a Bachelor of Arts. You might be familiar with these terms uh, before you could uh, go on to study at a higher faculty. But the courses were much, much, much longer than they are today. And many students uh, took a very um, instrumentalist approach to their study. In other words, they went, they studied for a bit. When they felt they learned enough to get a job, they left. Uh, many students left without ever taking a degree. Why Oxford specifically? Because uh, the universities are always uh, having they always had complex relationships between church authorities secular authorities and the university authorities themselves and in the case of oxford oxford was part of this enormous diocese in central england the diocese of lincoln and lincoln is is more than 100 miles away from oxford i think but oxford uh, was uh, in theory under the jurisdiction of lincoln so many people believe that the reason that the university was founded in oxford was precisely because it was harder for the bishop to interfere um, and the church often wanted to uh, take an interest in or perhaps have some influence over what was taught in the universities. Uh, and now, why did the Benedictines get involved? Well, they didn't at first. Uh, monks uh, were somewhat aloof from education uh, and uh, often felt that uh, getting involved in city uh, urban life was something that they should meddle with uh, because there was so much corruption in urban life that the monks might not be able to carry out their vows in a way that they had originally intended to. Um, and so uh, the monasteries initially did not get involved. But what happens at the beginning of the 13th century, for one reason or another, is that um, uh, mendicant orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, are founded and those orders take up university study with enormous enthusiasm uh, and scholars uh, of real, really high calibre uh, belong to these uh, orders which were founded in the case of the Dominicans to preach against heresy uh, and of course the Franciscans founded by Francis of Assisi um, with a doctrine of uh, kind of extreme poverty and imitation of Christ. Um, challenging the established norms of study and the established norms of sacred life. And the monasteries realise that they're losing ground, that, that in this kind of competition for recruits, uh, people are joining the mendicant orders, joining the Franciscans and the, Bened uh, the, Franciscans and the Dominicans, instead of joining the wealthier uh, and arguably perhaps more decadent uh, Benedictines. And so the Benedictines think we need to set up a college, uh, we need to let learning bloom again, they said. Uh, and uh, the uh, Benedictine uh, Council agreed that every monastery in England had to give one-twentieth of its annual wealth to support scholars in Oxford. Now, the, the poorer monastery didn't like that, uh, but it did lead to a huge amount of interest in university study among the monasteries. And then those 
students who went to study after they'd spent, you know, sometimes only one summer in the university, they would come back to their monastery and teach other people what they'd learned and pass on the benefit of their education. So if I want a better school, if I'm an abbot of a, of a you know, medium good monastery in the middle England, uh, and I want to have a better school teacher or school teachers, I send them off to Gloucester College in Oxford. Um, could be just for a couple of years, but they'll be a lot better at teaching uh, grammar to the seven-year-olds or eight-year-olds than they would have been before. Yeah. Yeah, or if you have a kind of junior monk who is clearly very bright and you think he's a potentially a future abbot or a future prior, you send him off to learn about law because when he comes back, he's going to be really useful in any legal disputes with local people who are fighting over lands which might have been donated uh, to the monastery or or rights to uh, certain income from from rent and so on. Uh, and a legal expertise was, was equally important, it had to be said. Now, I'm not likely, people have noticed, I'm I haven't said, if I want to have a better clock, I'll send the bright kid off to study you know, uh, astronomy um, in order to come back and make a better clock so that I can do, you know, have a, a better clock tower. I don't know why I would want to do that. Um, I, <laughs> I'm not sending people off to, to build a better astrolab. Um, nevertheless, they do that. Um, so why are they doing that when the incentive structure, uh, as we might say, is for them to learn civil and, uh, and ecclesiastical law? Well, that's a good question. I mean, and it comes back really to people following their own individual interests and pursuing their own intellectual desires. Uh, because as I say, uh, in theory, you would go, you would study the Faculty of Arts. The Faculty of Arts uh, was a kind of preparatory faculty for these higher studies. And you had to have a basic understanding of all of these subjects, including astronomy, including mathematics, including music, in order to be a kind of rounded, uh, knowledgeable person. And of course, some people uh, got taken up, uh, you know, got got enthusiastic about these subjects and wanted to carry on studying them, wanted to learn as much as they could about them. Uh, and so it's, I suppose, in many ways, uh, a simpler case of people following, pursuing their own interests. And then, of course, if someone like Richard of Wallingford, who I've already mentioned, studied for a long time in Oxford uh, before um, going back to St. Albans, immediately becoming abbot, possibly he promised the monks of St. Albans that he could build them this clock as a kind of uh, incentive for them to elect him abbot. Uh, and um, uh, and then once Richard of Wallingford is abbot of St. Albans, and then as I say, he was only abbot for, um, what, eight years from 1327 to 1335, um, and died probably from leprosy. Certainly he was described as having leprosy, and, and it seems that he died of it. Um, then his legacy is something for the monks to honour, something for the monks to value. So there's a sense that they carry on studying the books that he's written, um, even after his death, because he was an abbot and they should honour his memory by studying his works. So there's an element of maintaining tradition. And a huge amount of the work that is done in monasteries with books is a case of copying um, understanding, reading, glossing, these kind of monastic uh, habits of study, which are uh, really seen as kind of conservative in terms of understanding the knowledge which was passed down to them and conserving it. And if you can't understand it, then you don't really have the expertise necessary to conserve it and to pass it on to the next generation. Now, if John of Westwick was a student at Oxford, which he might have been, um, he would have been uh, laboring under the shadow of a long dead uh, 
great man, uh, Roger Bacon, about whom a lot of stupid things have been said, even while he was alive. Um, <laughs> and uh, so could we br briskly uh, talk about Roger Bacon and Albertus Magnus, um, who's been, uh, the Al Albert, who's been obscured by his uh, much more famous student, Thomas Aquinas. But um, you touch on them in, in the book as two different models of uh, medieval natural philosopher. Um, Roger is very critical of Albert. Um, Albert is a great polymath and um, actually a very distinguished professor of botany at uh, Cornell once said to me, you know, Albert the Great uh, was the, the finest field botanist until the late 19th century period. Um, That's a very interesting, it is, uh, it is. interesting description. Um, he, and so he was much more than just a polymath. He was a very skilled, you know, uh, field botanist. He's a skilled uh, observer. Uh, out in the natural mm -hmm. environment. Um, so could you talk about them and the sort of different divergences that they illustrate in sort of the field of, of medieval science? Yeah. Uh, so Albertus Magnus, uh, Albert of Lauingen, he was German. Uh, he was a Dominican. Uh, and one of the important things to say about the universities in the Middle Ages was that if you were a Dominican, if you were a Franciscan, if you were a Benedictine, it was possible, and, and above all the Franciscans and the Dominicans, um, it was possible to move between cities, move between universities, and to stay within your Dominican network, be taught by other Dominicans, read Dominican texts, uh, and focus on the priorities of your own order. So Albertus Magnus studied in, uh, in Paris um, and taught in Paris. Roger Bacon, an Englishman, uh, was a Franciscan, and also uh, at, at some time he was in Oxford, uh, and uh, and in his career he was also in Paris. Uh, and exactly as you say, Albertus Magnus, um, really um, perhaps not a real theoretical scholar, not really particularly noted for his readings or commentaries on other people's uh, writings, although, you know, he did that, of course, uh, as as all scholars did, but mostly noted for his observations and for his um investigations of the nature around him, investigations into uh, botany, as you say, but also into geology uh, and, uh, and many other things besides. Um, and noted uh, because he taught uh, the great Italian uh, scholar, above all theologian, Thomas Aquinas um, in the 13th century. So uh, that's Albertus Magnus. Uh, Roger Bacon, a Franciscan, um, in some ways a revolutionary, in other ways a real traditionalist. Um, he's very traditional in his approach to scholarship, in the way he says uh, you have to study uh, literature, you have to study languages above all. Uh, most of what we know of Roger Bacon's writings were uh, polemics which he composed <laughs> supposedly at the request of the Pope. So the Pope asked him for his proposals for a kind of reinvigoration of learning, and he responded at enormous length um, with uh, generally a summary of everything he knew, but also a proposal uh, for how learning could be enhanced. And some of that was very traditional in the sense of... Uh, um, of encouraging the kind of bread and butter education study of previous learning and study of languages. And that's where he's extraordinarily critical, although he never mentions him by name mm. of Albertus Magnus. Um, but it must be Albertus Magnus that he's referring to. Um, and uh, as being um, someone who hasn't done the basics, who hasn't um, uh, excelled at those lower levels of study. So all of his kind of observations are meaningless and pointless. Uh, Albertus Magnus, by the way, is often credited with, although this is more speculative, um, 
a book about magic and astrology and how uh, the science of magic and that's something that's often been credited to Albertus Magnus but uh, but that's a bit more dubious and it's certainly something that went around in the period as well uh, but the other facet of Bacon's learning is this interest in um, what well this is where we have to be a little bit careful with our language uh, scientia experimentalis so the science of experience or if you like experimental science although that's a bit of a mistranslation because it's not experimental in any modern um, organized sense of experiment uh, it's the science of experience and that science of experience for roger bacon was something that could be done in a somewhat systematic way uh, but really was a way of saying for um our purposes, and for Roger Bacon, the above, the most important purpose was the protection of Christendom against external threats. In order to protect Christendom, we must use all the sources of knowledge we can. And for Roger Bacon, that included alchemy. It included um, what might be termed natural magic, in other words, unexplained phenomena, like burning mirrors and lenses, which might be used to focus energy in, uh, in potentially damaging or destructive ways. So for Roger Bacon, uh, science is all about uh, using the potential of nature as far as possible in order to achieve your concrete practical goals. So let's let's move on. We've mentioned this uh, person, Richard of Wallingford, uh, several times. Um, could you describe uh, when John of Westwick returns uh, to the monastery, when he's in the monastery, we've said he's... He has this this person person of Richard of Wallingford, and his clock is uh, shadows is overshadows the place. Um, what was Richard of Wallingford's Albion? Okay, so the Albion is um, for some historians one of the most advanced scientific instruments of the period uh, and it's confusingly because if you read a lot of books the Albion is the same thing as the clock and that is definitely not true but even some historians have made that mistake mm -hmm. the Albion was a planetary equatorium and what that means is it's a computer uh, in the sense of it gives you information it outputs information based on other information which you input into it it computes the positions of the planets so it tells you where the planets are at any given time past or present or future and in so doing you can use that to understand the motions in the heavens you can use that to understand astronomy you could also use that for practical purposes uh, in order to uh, produce a horoscope uh, and uh, carry out astrological uh, prognostications um, but Richard of Wallingford's Albion was incredibly advanced because it, it encoded within it all of the information you needed. For most equatoria, you had to put in information from somewhere else. You had to look up data in tables and then use that data in order to move the different parts of the instrument that would then give you a, an output, give you a result. Uh, but for the Albion, it was all there encoded within the instrument. It had incredible range of scales, spiral scales, as well as, you know, complex uh, sort of what we would now think of as logarithmic scales uh, and um, it uh, was uh, just simply a, a really advanced piece of technology which you know many people read and, and very few people really understood um, and one of the um, manuscripts which we have in the hand of John of Westwick the monk who's at the center of my book 
uh, is a kind of study, a close reading of Richard of Wallingford's Albion, something that very few people did. And we, we can see John Westwick puzzling over it as he writes. He's very frank about bits he doesn't understand, bits he needs to explain in more detail, or comparisons he's making between two versions of this book. And so on the one hand, he John Westwick, when he reads the Albion, is being a very typical monk. He is um, carrying out a scholarly duty of collating two versions of this Albion treatise, which was written in Oxford when Richard of Wallingford was studying in Oxford in his final year at Oxford in 1326. So on the one hand, John of Westwick is being a very traditional monk, but on the other hand, he's he's opening up to us about his personality. He's uh, telling us when he gets confused. He's telling us when he doesn't understand something. And that, for me, was one of the great appeals of reading this. So did um, we're going to have to skip over some aspects of, of John's career, uh, like his exile to Tynemouth. I mean, I have to say, just when you think that history is about change over time, you encounter something like this, a suburban Londoner, the worst exile they can possibly have is being sent up north <laughs> To the mouth of the time, but let's let's pass over that. Um, yeah, well, it was a it was an absolute gift to me to read some of the descriptions of the monks sent <laughs> no, back because they were so moany and overblown about how terrible it was, how cold and the know. food. I mean, you yeah, can, it's you should see Scotland, read. mate. Is what I was I was thinking as I was yeah, reading yeah. that as I was reading that part. Um, yeah, it sends you to the Isle of Skye and see how you feel about that. Um, but what was the Equatorium, and did John of Westwick actually build one? Okay, uh, so the Equatorium, as I already said in the case of yeah. Richard of Wallingford, and Equatorium, Equatorium really, I suppose the, the simplest translation is computer. Okay. Uh, it equates things, it computes oh, things, nice. it gives you answers, it, it balances things out, it, it, it deals in equations. Um, but generally speaking, when we say Equatorium, we're talking about planetary Equatoria. And John of Westwick's Equatorium, um, was a design for a radically simplified, ultra-user-friendly uh, computer of planetary position. So nothing like the Albion, nothing as advanced as the Albion, but simple, pared down, easy to make, easy so to use. So this is rather brilliant, though, because, I mean, that's, I mean, to my mind, um, my father's an engineer, to, to come up, to see something complex like the Albion, and then to find a way to simplify it, is, it's a great gift. It's great insight. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that is um, really the kind of hallmark of medieval astronomy, medieval science in general, the desire not to revolutionize, but to improve a uh, kind of engineering focused mm -hmm. desire to make things better to tweak to uh, invent, you know, small things that will will improve the overall user experience. And we see that not just in instruments, but also in mathematical tables, the design of tables gets incrementally improved to make them more efficient, easier to copy, or, or to cut down on the on the processes involved in calculation. So for John of Westwick, what we have is a single manuscript, uh, which, as you mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, was uh, discovered in 1951 by a young historian named Derek Price, who later uh, called himself Derek de Sola Price, uh, who became the first uh, professor of history of science at Yale. Um, and uh, and Price discovered this manuscript, uh, which is a description of how to make this instrument. And one of the really striking things about this description is it's written in Middle English. Uh, so um, I think uh, that John Westwick wrote this description in order to instruct a craftsman in how to build this instrument. And it was an instrument that he had certainly built himself, but not at the scale which he instructs it should be built at. He says it should be six feet in diameter, wow. 72 large inches, he says. And, um, uh, and, and it's 
quite probable that it was never actually built at that scale because the brass involved uh, simply with the kind of uh, structural stability of brass it would be very hard to make a ring which was uh, six feet in diameter uh, but the ring itself only two inches wide uh, so almost all empty space with this kind of thin band of brass uh, would be very hard to make that uh, using medieval technology hammered out brass um, and have it be structurally stable and in fact a modern copy which was made uh, in the Cavendish laboratory uh, the laboratory where the structure of DNA was discovered in Cambridge, um, made in that laboratory in 1950, uh, 1952 um, for Derek de Sola Price. Uh, the, the, the replica, which still survives, uh, is also not very structurally stable. It really It's very hard to be displayed. It can't really be displayed. What you can do, listeners can do, is look on the Cambridge Digital Library uh, website. If they go to the Cambridge Digital Library website, uh, they can... Um, uh, see a virtual model of the equatorium and they can understand and figure out how it works. But for John Westwick working in London in the early months of 1393, it's an attempt either to translate an existing Latin text or more likely uh, to um, write down what he's learned from seeing other equatoria and how he's improved uh, the methods of making them. And as I say, it's written in Middle English, but he also throws in bits of Latin and even quotations from Arabic, uh, which he's clearly picked up from somewhere. Mm -hmm. He even creates, he's, he's a neologist, he creates some, some new words as well. Yes, indeed. Uh, and uh, some of the words which um, he uses were only previously used by Chaucer, so he's clearly been reading, reading Chaucer's work, but he also adds in words um, which have never been found in English before, although, of course, it's possible that other people had used them, but we just don't have evidence of that anymore. Mm -hmm. what, what is, why, why do you think he wrote Chaucer in the, uh, in the margin? Was there, was there a Chaucer connection? I mean, they are contemporaries. Yes, uh, it's uh, he refers to the treatise on the astrolabe, which was a manual for an astrolabe, a quintessential medieval scientific instrument, the smartphone of the Middle Ages. Um, and Chaucer wrote a treatise on the astrolabe, an instruction manual for the astrolabe for his 10-year-old son, or at least uh, ostensibly for his 10-year-old son, Lewis. Um, and it seems... Uh, that Westwick had read this very soon after it was written. Uh, so it's uh, highly likely that Westwick had some kind of association with Chaucer in London. Chaucer, of course, was working in London at the time. Um, in order for Westwick to have access to this text, he he must have had some association with Chaucer. London wasn't that big a place after all. Um, and, uh, and he cites Chaucer as the source of a fairly basic piece of astronomical data uh, the number of days in three in the number of days in 1392 years 1392 years uh, and he cites that as being kind of Chaucer's baseline or Chaucer's data um, and uh, and this is something that kind of historians have puzzled over why why give a name for something fairly basic and absolute like that but Westwick loved citing things <laughs> and it was a very monkish thing to do to to cite your sources for things in the same way as you know someone who's showing off today yeah. might say oh you know I I read this in in whatever whether it's Rumi or Foucault yeah. or I don't know who, I, well, I, uh, I I I notice their knowledge. not just the, the the hatred of things northern but there's some other modern predilections that you see here like Roger Bacon turns out to be one of the great uh the uh, classic uh, medieval history seminar uh, translation bore who's always going on and on yes. about how bad translations are i mean it, it, those people yes pe indeed. we've all if you've been in that kind of class you know exactly who we're talking about um everyone has them <laughs> uh sometimes they teach the class 
but oftentimes they're grad students. Uh, and likewise, uh, this this the, the endless citation of John of Westwick does also reminds me of a certain uh, grad student predilection. Indeed, yes. Uh, uh, but it, no, it's it, it comes from a good place. Yeah, yeah. Well, it usually does. Um, you uh, refer to him as Little John of Westwick near the end. Um, Little John of Westwick is a is a is a member of a great conversation. I think we've touched on how uh, this 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 continuous updating, this careful sort of uh, simplifying that's going on, the improving that's going on throughout the entire Middle Ages is of immense importance to everything that comes after. Absolutely right. Uh, you know, I think sometimes when people ask me about this book, they ask me if I'm trying to um, make John of Westwick into a household name. I want everybody to give him the importance he's been unjustly denied. But I don't think that at all. I don't think he was important. I don't <laughs> think he should necessarily be a household name. The point is that, uh, as I said at the beginning, or as, as you, you kind of teed me up to saying, uh, he's important precisely because he's not important. Uh, and he makes a good... Uh, um, character in our story partly because he had this interesting and adventurous life which makes my my book more enjoyable to read i hope um but uh partly also because he could be anyone he's an everyman and so yes he makes a contribution but many 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 other people did too you uh have a very arresting uh comment um uh at the uh, end of the book you say uh that the middle ages and that science would still be interesting even if they had really believed the world was flat, they would still be interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, I think um, the mistake that historians sometimes make is in judging the value of the science of the past based on how right they were. Um, and I think um, actually the value of the science past is best judged according to how um, original or ingenious or just plain interesting it is to us. Um, and so the fact of something turning out to be right is is almost the least interesting part of it. You know, the fact that uh, Copernicus turns out to have been more or less right about uh, the Earth going around the sun, I always have to think which way around it really is, um, <laughs> is, uh, is, is almost the least interesting part of the way he built up his theories and the way he got his ideas from. And so uh, what, I, what I want to talk about in the book and what I want people really to understand is how important scientific thinking and scientific ingenuity and scientific questioning was as a feature of medieval life and culture. And that is, is important and that is relevant, regardless of whether they were right about things or not. And of course, sometimes when they're wrong, it's hilarious uh, and interesting when they talk about beavers biting off their own testicles in order to throw them at hunters so that they can get away, um, uh, the rest of them at least, can get away uh, from being <laughs> hunted. Uh, so, you know, when they're wrong, they can be hilariously wrong. Um, but when when uh, they're wrong, they can also be ingenious and interesting and clever. Uh, because I think the, the one mistake that people should never make about the past is thinking that uh, if they believe something that we now know to be wrong, they were stupid. Uh, that way lies disaster. Uh, because, of course, it assumes that we now know everything that there is to know and that we could never be wrong because we know certain things. Uh, and, uh, and history teaches us that uh, we can certainly still be wrong and we continue to be wrong and we always will. My guest today has been Seb Falk. He's the author of The Light Ages, the surprising story of medieval science, now available for sale in the United States uh, when you hear this podcast. Seb, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great conversation. Mm -hmm.
For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.